Well, again, um, good morning to all of you, and I look forward to continuing this, uh, this study of God with us together. Um, I see that there are a number of guests with us today, so um, it's always my habit to point out that uh, colored insert. I know some of you get sick of that, but uh, there's always new people here, so I just want you to recognize that uh, colored insert, and if that can be a blessing to you as we, uh, as we study together, uh, I pray that it will be. So I've got a a question again for you to consider, and you don't need to turn to anyone around you. You know, uh, Pastor Matt didn't do that last week, so I won't do that either. But you could mention it to someone next to you if you want. Here's the question. Do you have a favorite Christmas movie or Christmas TV show? When I say that, a favorite Christmas movie, what comes to mind? In the last five to seven years, um, one of my favorite Christmas movies is, uh, is quite a silly movie. In fact, uh, I've got a picture of it here on the screen. It's the movie Elf. <laughs> just love that movie. Um, and many of you have seen it, but just in case you haven't, let me just give you a quick synopsis. So Elf is about a, a normal human baby that somehow got to the North Pole and was raised by the little elves. And so as he grows up, he begins to see that he's a little bit different than the other elves, first and foremost, because he's like quadruple their size, okay? And so this becomes a problem for him. He doesn't feel like he fits in. You know, the little elf gift, you know, making tools are too small for him, so he's not good on the assembly line. And so he goes off to search for his biological father who lives in New York City. And so most of the movie is how this kind of naive elf sort of confronts the, the mean uh, world of New York City and, uh, and all the things that go on as, as he s- sort of tries to adapt. Well, towards the end of the movie, um, Buddy, the elf, brings back to New York. He is a catalyst to bring back the Christmas spirit And, of course, also what happened is that this was just in time because Santa's sleigh, the jet engine broke, and they needed Christmas spirit in order to get the sleigh to fly to get all the gifts out. So, obviously, based on a true story, that's why I like it it so much, a documentary of sorts. Um, I don't know what movies shows you thought of. Um, maybe some of you, it was the, the Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, or the Christmas Story, you know, the one about shooting your eye out, you know that one? Um, for people that are my age, I, I don't think you can think of Christmas movies without thinking about Home Alone, <laughs> one that came out when I was uh, younger. Um, If you're a little bit older, I think that those yearly Christmas shows that came on only once a year, and whether it be Frosty or Rudolph or or a little bit later, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, you know, those maybe come to mind. But there's there's a common link, a commonality, it seems, with almost all, not all, but almost all Christmas movies or TV shows, and that is this huge emphasis on Christmas spirit, and in one way or another, the miracle of Christmas. So, you know, whether it be how Ebenezer Scrooge went from a grouch, a Scrooge, to a total change of attitude, or maybe it's... um, 
in Elf how, how he was able to bring this Christmas cheer to New York, or, or maybe a snowman that's able to walk, talk, and dance. You know, there's this Christmas magic around Christmas movies and shows, Christmas miracles, almost all of them. One of the things that's true about the biblical account of Christmas is that it, too, has a miracle that's right at the heart of it. So that's our first fill-in for today that you'll see on the screen. That the biblical account of Christmas involves a miracle. And not just one, a few of them. So uh, we read about one of them earlier, how a virgin would be pregnant. That, that's a, a miracle. Or about how on Christmas night that the The sky lit up with angels, the Bible tells us, everywhere as they sang a song to the shepherds. But the miracle of all miracles that we think of at Christmas time is that God would not only decide to become a human being, but that God became a human being. That our Savior was both God and man, God with us. Now, if you're someone new to church or new to the Bible, I just want to acknowledge something for you. That the heart of Christmas, that God would become a human being, seems unbelievable. That it seems like an impossibility. And I just want to acknowledge that. That, that Christmas does, the biblical, the true count of Christmas involves a miracle. But while I will acknowledge that to you, I also, in this message, want to bring out how it is so much different, the, Christ, the true Christmas miracle, how it's so much different, <laughs> you might imagine, than Elf or Rudolph or Frosty and the miracles that happen in those movies. One of the things to bring out at the beginning here of the difference Um, I think dovetails quite nicely with our study last week. Um, If you were here, you know that Pastor Matt started us off by looking at John chapter 1. And if you weren't here, listen to the message or at least read John chapter 1, a beautiful section where John very clearly says that the Word became flesh or God took on skin and bone, or as one pastor said it, and it just resonates with me, that it was God in a bod, that Jesus is God in a bod. (laughs) Now, who was John, the one who wrote about this, this seeming unbelievable thing? Who was John? Some of you know. um, He was one of the 12 disciples, but not only one of the 12, he was actually one of Jesus' closest friends um, of the 12 disciples, And, and in fact, so close that when Jesus died, right before he died, what did he ask John to do? To take care of his mother, Mary. You know the the one who had the virgin birth, that Mary. And I know this isn't recorded for us in Scripture, but I almost guarantee you that John had a conversation with Mary at some point during those years where he took care of her. If I were John, I would have asked Mary about this virgin birth thing. And what did the angel tell you? And how did this happen? And really, do you know what John is not? A script writer in Hollywood trying to think up some elaborate miracle story in order to make some money. You know what John is? Someone who had intimate knowledge of the truth of Christmas 
even being the caretaker of the Savior's mom and wrote about it, what he heard, what he knew, and in many places in the gospel, what he saw. Now, that makes it different. But there's something else that we're going to spend the rest of our time on today. And that's really the backstory of Christmas. You see, the backstory of why we needed a Savior who was both God and man brings to light how, yes, this is a miracle, but how it's not some sort of fictitious uh, Christmas story or Christmas movie that you might watch, but that there is a God who is totally in control and totally gave us the exact sacrifice that we needed. And so some of you may have been, may be Christians all your life, but this study today is going to be, I think, a reaffirming one for you to bring more confidence and joy in the truth of who Jesus was. And to do that, we're going to look at four verses in Hebrews chapter 2. And just a real quick background on Hebrews. Um, This was a letter written to some Hebrew Christians, or another way to say that, are Christians who used to be Jewish or followers of Judaism, okay? And you got to understand something, and some of you know this, but to be a Christian at the very beginning of the Christian church was not a very easy proposition. And the main reason is, as soon as you called yourself a Christian, or at least publicly was known as one, your life was in danger. Because in the Roman Empire, many of you know this, that Christianity was outlawed. And so what happened, because their life was in danger, many of these Jewish Christians started to fall away and not believe, in part because of how hard it was to stay in the faith because their lives were in danger. So the writer to the Hebrews, his main task was to encourage these Hebrew Christians not to stop believing, to stay in the faith. And do you know how he did that? you know what his, his way of getting them to stay was? Very simple. He just focused on Jesus. And he explained Jesus in ways that they would understand. So what he did was he talked about sacrifices, and he talked about bloodshed of bulls, and he talked about high priests, and against that backdrop of Old Testament laws and ritual, he talked about how Jesus was the perfect fulfillment. What he did was he talked in the language of Jews. Like if I'm I'm talking to a musician, I might use the lingo that musicians understand. No, I'm not a musician, so maybe I don't know the lingo. Or if I'm talking to an athlete, I might use the the, the lingo that athletes understand. And so this writer used the, the lingo, the background that the Jews would understand, having been experts in the Old Testament. And in chapter two, he digs in a little bit into who Jesus was and why he had to be human, which is pretty cool. Um, Chapter 2, let's look at verse uh, 14. Starts this way, this section. Since the children, since people, humans, have flesh and blood, Jesus, the Savior, he too shared in their humanity. He took on flesh and blood. Why? So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Who is that? That is the devil. So right away, 
we have a very clear direction as to why the Savior came. To destroy the one who has the power over death. Now, that may be kind of a surprising phrase. Doesn't God have the power over death? Isn't God in control? How is it that the devil would be considered the one who holds the power of death? And this really goes back to the whole point of Christmas, the whole point of needing a Savior. Go back to the the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to. The devil was there. The devil wasn't the one to blame because Adam and Eve were the ones to blame, but he was certainly there tempting them. And through that sin that he tempted them to do, what else came into this world? It's up there. Death. Physical death, which is still in place. You know as well as I do that unless Jesus returns first, we're all going to die physically. Also, what came with that sin was eternal death, that if there's sin but no Savior, that there is eternal punishment. And so the devil is still alive and active. Uh, You might know a verse, uh, it might sound familiar to you, Uh, it goes like this, be self-controlled and alert, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, you could hear a verse like that and be filled with lots of fear. I always tell people, that's not why God gave it to us. You do not need to be afraid of the devil, dear Christians. But we should be self-controlled and alert. We don't need to be scared, but we need to be aware and to be careful of his power. Still today, he would like nothing more than to rip us away from Jesus. And in that way still, he holds the power over death. Because if we fall away, or if those certain people who never know Jesus as their Savior, they will experience both physical death and eternal death. So Jesus came to destroy him. Now, that sounds like a total annihilation, doesn't it? Destroy? Sounds like a good old-fashioned butt-kicking to me. You know, speaking of Christmas movies, the, the word destroy kind of makes me think of Home Alone. You know how Kevin McAllister was ready for the wet bandits to come? And they had no chance against this elementary school kid. And they tripped or fell on the icy steps and paint cans into the head. And in fact, and remember, I have kids, so that's why I know Home Alone so well. There's a, an iron mark on one guy's face, you know, hot iron mark, and just total destroying of the wet bandits, kind of. You know, that's what Jesus could have done the first time he came. He could have come in all of his power and all of his glory. He could have come with the angels and trumpets, which, by the way, is how he's going to come the next time, on the last day, and just totally destroyed the devil right there, flexed his God muscles. As soon as he got here, the devil be done with, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't come that way. And he didn't just flex his muscles right away. He came humbly. He came as a human being. Why? Notice it says he came not just to destroy the devil, 
but to destroy the power the devil has over death. You see, if, if Jesus would have come that way the first time and just kind of flexed his muscles, devil be done with, guess what the truth would be? The devil would be destroyed and we'd still be in our sin. If Jesus, his sole purpose was to come and just get rid of the devil right there and come in all of his glory, the devil would be done away with and we'd still be going to hell. And here is why. Go to the next slide. We'll see the highlighted words. That he needed to destroy the devil by his death. Because Jesus' power as Savior wasn't seen in God coming down to earth and just getting rid of the devil right then and there, but it was seen in him first dying in our place. The only way he could get rid of death was by being the perfect substitute for our sin. Now, let me ask, does God die? He's eternal. No beginning, no end. So how can the Savior die in our place. You know how? He had to take on flesh. He had to become a human being. And so in order for Jesus to be the substitute that we needed and to destroy death, the power of death, he couldn't just come in his power. He had to come in his humility in order to die and be the perfect substitute that we needed. Our next fill-in here is on the screen. Jesus was our perfect savior through his death. He needed to die in our place. And have you ever considered, stopped to consider what a sacrifice that would have been for him? Um, My mind kind of works in weird ways, so just bear with me. But last week, uh, or not last, it was a few weeks ago when we had that really cold stretch in November, and now it's like spring. I don't know. It's weird. Um, I was pulling out on one of those really cold mornings and uh, trying to warm up, shivering in my car because I hadn't been running for very long yet and the heat wasn't working yet. And and I saw hopping across my uh, porch and my uh, garage, uh, front of the garage, a a rabbit. And remember I said my, my mind works in weird ways. One of the things I thought about as I'm shivering in my car is like, I'm so glad I'm not a rabbit. Like. Like, geese are smart. They leave Minnesota in the winter, right? But rabbits, they stick around. I don't even know, and some of you probably do, but I don't even know where they go. And their fur is not that, you know, thick. And it just would, would you want to be a rabbit? (laughs) Floppy ears, hopping everywhere, eating vegetables all the time. I mean, goodness. How about this? Different question. What if the rabbits needed saving? Would you become a rabbit then? It's still not worth it, is it? Did you know that the difference between us and rabbits is infinitely smaller than the difference between a god becoming human? I mean, think about it for a second. Uh, God has never been confined by anything. And yet he comes to earth and chooses to be confined to a body, which, by the way, Jesus still has a body. God's in charge of everything, 
Kind of ironic then, when he lived with Mary and Joseph as mom and dad, he had to follow their rules. God's never had the need for anything. And yet when he came to earth, he experienced hunger and thirst and being tired and pain, unlike any pain we've ever experienced, especially on the cross I'm referencing. What tremendous love there was. I think we so often, just because we've always been human, this is all we know, (laughs) what tremendous sacrifice there was that God would become flesh. And understand, it's the only way he could be our savior because he needed to die in our place. And then what happened? Next verse. And so by becoming human, He freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What do you fear? You know, uh, John Hopkins University did uh, about a 30-year study of what kids fear. And 30 years ago, the number one thing that kids feared, according to this study, was animals. Like dogs, you know, big barking dogs, followed by um, the dark, high places, strangers, and loud noises. 30 years later, this kind of shows you where our world is. Um, The number one thing kids fear nowadays is divorce. That is, that their parents might be divorced. Followed by war, cancer, pollution, and getting mugged. Great world we live in, huh? (laughs) A lot of change over 30 years. Do you know what the number one fear of adults is today? If you take the whole scope of, of the world, it's up here. Death. Do you know what it was 30 years ago? Do you know what it probably was 100 years ago? Do you know what God freed you from? That. Slavery to the fear of death. Now, do you ever still have some fears around death? Probably. I mean, there's this this pain that usually accompanies death that, I mean, none of us would choose. I mean, don't let people kid you. Death is not natural. It's not. God created us to live forever. So what's natural is for us to live forever. Death is a result of sin, and so there's always pain associated with it. Um, The fear of maybe how you're going to cope with someone really close to you not being with you anymore, that's a fear of death. Or or maybe it's put the shoe on the other foot. Maybe it's the fear of how your family would cope if you die. So there's certain fears around death, but you know what we don't need anymore to be Pulled around like slaves to the fear of death because when Jesus died, he was our perfect substitute. And now the curtain has been opened on death. The power of the devil has been conquered. And we know that death is just a walkway, an avenue, a doorway to something so much better than we've ever experienced. That for a Christian, We do not need to fear death. And that, my friends, is the heart of Christmas. 
that a Savior who allows us to really have no fear. Because if we're not afraid of death, what, what truly do we have to fear? If that's been taken away, what is there? Verse 16. For surely it's not the angels that Jesus came to help, but again, people, Abraham's descendants. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers, like people in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So Jesus, have you ever seen pictures of him with a priest collar on? You know, that's what, no, that's not what that's referencing. He wasn't a priest like that. Um, In the Old Testament, priests were the ones who made sacrifices. Jesus was the sacrifice. So in Hebrews, many times he's called a priest because he sacrificed himself. So he became a priest in service to God that he might make atonement or make up for the sins of the people. He became like us in every way. We've already talked about this, meaning that he had flesh and bone, he got tired, he got hungry, he got, um, he got thirsty, he experienced pain. But there's one other thing that is referenced in every way that I want to bring out, is that Jesus also chose, when he came to this earth, to live under the direction of the commandments and rules of God that he had given for us. That he decided to live according to the commandments and under their direction. And in fact, it was so important for him to keep them perfectly. Um, Psalm 49 references uh, the type of person that can redeem us It says, no man, in context, no sinful person can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. When we think of our salvation being paid, I think so often we like just tend to concentrate on the cross and on Easter and the empty tomb. And in part, that's for good reason, because that's where the culmination of things happened. But I would really encourage you not to see your salvation being paid for only on the cross and only with the empty tomb. Because the truth is, is that if Jesus just came and died, but he did not have a perfect life first, his death would have meant nothing. That part of being our Savior, and a, a vital part, was that he had to first live a perfect life in our place. In fact, Look at this verse that Paul wrote to the Romans. It's uh, interesting. It says, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. It's odd. Like, if you just had that verse, you'd be like, where's the cross? How did he save us through his obedience? Well, you can't have obedience without the cross. But you also can't have the cross without first perfect obedience. And so when you read through the Gospels, when you hear us preach on things that happened in Jesus' life, I hope you're always thinking about this, that as you see Jesus perfectly rebuking the devil in the desert when he's trying to tempt him, and he doesn't fall to sin, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing Jesus being your Savior right there. Because if he had fallen, the sacrifice wouldn't have mattered. 
Or when you see how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, and believe me, most of us, we would have lost our patience with the Pharisees long before. I mean, all they were out for is to to trick Jesus, and yes, he rebuked them at times because of their unbelief, but he treated them in love, and he never lost his temper against them in the sense of an ungodly, sinful loss of temper. And in that, you know what I want you to see? Jesus being your perfect Savior. And because Jesus had to be perfect, we talked about how he needed to be man in order to die. He had to be God in order to be perfect. Why? Well, pretty simply, we were born with sin. A sinful nature passed down to us. Why is there this whole virgin birth thing? It seems like some Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer thing. So elaborate, so crazy. Why? Because the backstory tells us that if God was not conceived in a, Jesus was not conceived in a miraculous way, guess what he would have had? If it was just two parents, he would have had a sinful nature too. And he wouldn't have been the savior that we needed. And so we see God's amazing plan that our Savior would be both man to die for us and God to be perfect in our place. Our next villain. And so Jesus was our perfect Savior, also through his perfect obedience. You cannot have the cross without obedience, and you cannot have obedience without the cross. You needed both. So let's wrap this up. How do we uh, take this and make it portable, make it something that you can take home with you? Well, I want you to think about gifts for a moment. And uh, last week on Sunday at uh, Growth Group, uh, we spent some time talking about certain uh, gifts that didn't quite hit the mark. And uh, I shared how in the early years of uh, marriage, uh, I um, tried to surprise Carrie with a Christmas gift without, you know, any hints or anything like that. And in retrospect, I I definitely chose a wrong, you know, type of gift, which was clothes. I've learned my lesson uh, since then. But uh, so I picked out, I bought this like gray, I don't know any better word for it. You guys, gals may have a better word for it, but blazer, like a a coat, but more of a dressy one. And uh, when she opened it, and those of you who know my wife know how just she's very kind and sweet. And so she had that when she opened it. And I thought, all right, I think I did okay. I must have got her a great gift. And then like a few days after I gave it to her, it was still in her closet and she hadn't worn it yet, which I didn't think anything of it. You know, maybe there wasn't the right time to wear it because of course it was a great gift. And uh, about... Four weeks later, it was still in the closet, and she had never worn it. And, and you know, I think I even asked her, what, you know, do you like it? And she was nice. And she said yes. But like three years later, it's still in the closet, and she's never worn it. And, and I know clearly that I didn't hit the mark, right? <laughs> Have you ever not hit the mark with a gift? I know you have. Here's why. It's called huge long lines the day after Christmas. 
returns, right? In fact, I just read that they're, they're estimating that there's going to be over $50 billion of re- Christmas returns this year. <laughs> Lots of people getting gray blazers that their wives don't like. And the joy of Christmas that I want you to take home today in somewhat of a more deeper theological study today is I hope that you understand better about how Jesus was the perfect gift. That if he wasn't man, he couldn't have been our Savior. And if he wasn't God, he couldn't have been our perfect Savior. What we needed was God with us. And that's what Jesus gave, God gave you at Christmas. And that is what I pray is your greatest joy, no matter what gray blazer your husband gets you, okay?